You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Jessica Hish, and I'm a Bay Area author and artist. Um, and I'm pleased to be in conversation here with Mina Harris. Mina is the founder and CEO of the Phenomenal Women's Action Campaign and is author of the new children's book, Kamala and Maya's Big Idea. The book is based on the real relationship between Mina's mother, lawyer and policymaker Maya Harris, and her sister, U.S. Senator Kamala Harris. If you'd like to ask Mina a question during the program, please ask it in the chat if you're watching on YouTube or in the comments if you're watching on Facebook. So let's get started. And thank you for joining us today, Mina. Thank you for having me. It's uh, such a weird thing to have been to so many Inform events in person and to now be doing it over Zoom, but here we are, and I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, and I'm just excited to be in conversation with you because I'm such like a fan. <laughs> same, same. I'm a huge fan of yours. So anyway, let's uh, let's get to it. I'm going to ask you a little bit about yourself and, and, of course, about the book, and we'll sort of just sort of talk about the the stuff that all the concepts and stuff that you wanted to really pack into that book to help make a big impact on little kids. So uh, first, you grew up surrounded by strong, civically engaged women. You even said that growing up, uh, that while you're growing up, the idea of like male leadership was actually really foreign. And I thought that was so funny. Can you talk about the impact that had on you? Yes, it was incredibly formative for me. And that's exactly right. I joke that, you know, living in my household was sort of like the opening scene of the Wonder Woman movie, where it's like an all female uh, sovereign island nation where they're just like running around saving the world and helping each other. And that's like in my child's eye, like that's what my family looked like to me. And it's literally all I knew. And so yeah, the idea that like men would run things was totally foreign to me. In my world, women ran everything. They were the bosses and the leaders. And I, and now, obviously, as I got older, I realized how unique that was. I realize now, especially as a parent myself, you know how unique that was. And and I think all the time about how do I continue to create and, and replicate in some ways and emulate that atmosphere for my own children, which is one of the reasons why I wrote the book, which I know we'll get into. But um, you know, it was. It was um, incredibly important for me to see, to have a front row seat to all of these incredible, um, powerful women who were, you know, out in the world making positive change. And I, you know, got to see, I, I, they told me every day that I could do anything, that I could be anything. But most importantly, they were showing me, right, through what they were doing, what was possible. And um, I, I feel super fortunate to have um, had that front row seat and, and to really have, you know, um, gotten a lot of values and, and lessons directly from them as they were doing the work. And as I said, now as a parent myself, I think all the time, you know, I, we have a two parent household. It's not um, all women here, but I often, you know, think about how do I continue to pass it on to my daughter so that she too can understand, right. Um, what it means for a world for the default in the world to be female leadership. How amazing would that be? And so I'm trying. <laughs> Totally. Well, what was it like when you sort of like had your world shattered that that wasn't how it was for everyone? <laughs> Gosh, you know, somebody asked me this um, recently and I kind of learned about it in different ways throughout my life in terms of people seeing it as different. And one of the first times was when I was very young 
And it was more coming from a place of, frankly, judgment and from people saying, oh, wow, you have a, you know, an 18 year old mom, you have a single mom and, uh, you know, understanding that I was different. And at that time, it was, you know, less of a source of pride for me because it was something that um, I could feel others were, you know, judging us for. And now, of course, it's a huge source of pride, right? Um, I'm, I, my mother oh, yeah. is a superhero as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, you know, I celebrate her every day in terms of, you know, what she did. And my grandmother, same thing, right? Um, she was also basically a single mom. So that's sort of, you know, early on, it, as I said, it's all I knew, but I could tell that other people perceived me as different. Uh, and then as I got older, you know, it's funny, I have this memory, um, right out of college it was my first job, I was working at Facebook, and it coincided with the 08 presidential campaign, uh, which I was a huge part of uh, for Obama. And one of my coworkers one day, you know, I was at work, but I was organizing and, and volunteering and getting people to, you know, join fundraisers and things like that. And he's like, how did you get into this stuff? Like, how did you, how did you turn out this way? And it was just another moment of like, wow, this is just sort of how I grew up. This is all I know, right? Um, folks who are sort of in, in that work. Um, and I think sort of the third phase for me is now, right, as a mom and realizing there were so many aspects of how I grew up that were both very intentional, right? And my grandmother really, and, and my mom and my aunt wanting to really instill in, important values and lessons in me. Um, but a lot of it was also by necessity, right? Like part of it was that uh, my mom didn't have childcare um, after work sometimes. And she took me with her to her meetings. I have memories, you know, as a four-year-old when she was in law school where sometimes she took me to class and I sat in the back of the class and, you know, colored um, when she wasn't able, you know, when I was out of school or something like that. And so it was sort of, as I said, out of necessity, but it was so important for me to see my mom working and to see my mom in the world and, you know, doing stuff. And in my eyes, I said, being, you know, a leader uh, and, and doing important stuff in the world. So now, you know, as I have a lot more privileges, um, as I said, we're a two parent household. I, you know, usually have access to childcare. Um, but I still think about, you know, how do I replicate that for my own kids, knowing how important it was. So, you know, bringing them along to events when we all know that is not easy to do with small children, and it would be much easier to like, leave them at home sometimes, right. But like, I want her to see that. And I want to make sure that I'm being, you know, just as intentional as I know that my grandmother and my mom were too. Yeah, it's an interesting time right now, too, because I feel like a lot of people are sort of being forced to do that with their kids just because we're all working from home with our children. I'm working at my office right now because I have three children and it'd be absolutely insane <laughs> oh trying gosh. to do this while they were around. But um, I feel like, you know, not all parents are able to have that experience where their kids are able to actually see them working and see what their job is like. And I'm just so interested how you think this is all going to play out, like with basically everyone having that experience. But also there's this weird thing going on with like, you know, two parent households, one parent is having to do more of the childcare. And a yes. lot of times that does fall on women. And what kind of impact do you think this is all going to have? It's just so complicated. Yeah, you know, I've noticed it uh, even before the pandemic, but it's such a great point that, um, you know, people are calling it like an equalizer. But then we also know that a lot of the same, you know, uh, kind of bad norms in terms of women doing the bulk of, you know, housework is, is still creeping up. Um, 
I, there's one in, in particular moment that I uh, recall around this where I was working from home a lot. I, I was in tech for a long time and, you know, we can work remotely and I was, you know, doing back to back calls and uh, it was nice because I was around my kids. Right. I would rather like be in the same house than be away all day long and then come back at the end of the day. So like that's one of the silver linings, even though you may get a little bit <laughs> distracted or interrupted. But, you know, she was very young and uh, she started after sort of a period of weeks saying, I have a meeting. I have a meeting. And she was really young. Um, I have a conference call, mommy. I have to get on a call. She would like find, you know, shoelaces or even our actual, uh, this is before the like uh, wireless headphones, right? And put the headphones on. And she um, one time said, said it to my mom. She said, grandma, I have to go to a meeting. And she said, oh, really? Who are you going to a meeting with? She said, mommy, mommy and I have a meeting. And at first I was like, oh my God, what have I done to my children? But then I had this moment of like, you know what, like, this is good, right? Like, this is actually uh, important for her to know that mommy has meetings and mommy works and right, mommy is doing interesting stuff uh, outside of our house and in the world. Um, so that's one thing that I found pretty entertaining and then had to kind of step back and say, you know what, like, I actually think that's a good thing. And I'm, I'm happy about that. And that was how it was for me to grow up, right? Like, my mom was working a lot. And I had immense appreciation, um, in part because my grandmother was driving that home all the time. Do you know how hard your mom works? Your mom works so hard. Do you really? And I think part of it was wanting to make sure that I had an appreciation, right? That my mom was working really hard to give us a good life and to provide for me and to make sure that I was grateful, right? And all that. But I also think there was a message of like, there's always work to be done, right? In terms of the Mm -hmm. social justice work that they were all doing. Um, in terms of, you know, you asked about the uh, dynamic of, um, you know, who the burden of, of housework and childcare falls on. We have a very unique situation in our, our household, which is that my partner is right now a full-time dad. So my experience is actually flipped from what I'm seeing with a lot of friends where um, I'm sure lots of people saw that article. I think it was in the Bay Area where a woman had a company and then she asked her um husband who had been laid off to like take care of the kids for three days. And then he like, couldn't deal oh, with yeah, it. And yeah. so she shut down her company. Um, I need to look into more details. Cause that just sounds so wild that I'm like, what else was going on in that? But anyway, you know, that's an example, I think where, uh, things are really getting flipped in some ways, but then at the same time, we're seeing some of those, um, what I think are, are pretty harmful sort of, you know, social norms around who's expected to do the unpaid labor, the, you know, childcare, the housework. Um, and it's interesting to have a, a, a unique situation and I'm able to appreciate that even more. I, I had another call recently where I said, how's it going? How are you guys adjusting, you know, to the homeschooling? And and it was the um, husband and he said, oh, it's great because my wife is doing all of it. I was like, all right. Uh, glad that you're, you know, feeling free like, and, you and know, bye. yeah. <laughs> So, um, but I think that's, it's, it, it really does raise an important point, which is that this is labor, right? And I think people have an appreciation now more than ever where you're having to juggle homeschooling with your real job with, you know, if you had help before, like doing the laundry, making dinner, everything all at once. Um, and I think one, it's just so clear that, you know, we cannot possibly do it all, but um, two, that there, there's, it is actual labor and it's uncompensated labor that often falls on women. And we really need to recognize that. Totally. I feel like COVID is going to be like the thing that pushes like universal basic income or income for house workers and stuff into everybody's minds just because there's so so many people dealing with it right now, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I would talk about this stuff forever with you, but we should probably get a little bit back on track. <laughs> I know we're supposed to go to coffee, uh, but that like obviously got, you know, messed up months ago. So one day. <laughs> so I noticed you're wearing a phenomenal woman t-shirt. As uh, I mentioned in the intro, you've started this awesome camp, this auction, awesome action campaign uh, around phenomenal women. And it, it tackles some really, really big issues that are at a large scale. And coming from a family that had a lot of big achievers, did you always feel capable of attacking big issues? Or uh, was there ever a time where you felt really intimidated and needed to sort of like start at a really small scale? Or did you always feel like a, a single individual could have a really big impact? You know, um, I think it was both in the sense that I, I was sort of told and encouraged and sort of showed up thinking I can do anything. And Part of that is knowing that I had, you know, a supportive family that was going to support me in doing whatever I wanted. Uh, and so I think I definitely someone um, I, I did a Zoom with a bunch of kids and someone said, where did your confidence come from? Right. And what I said was it, it came from my family and early on and teaching me right that um, I was worthy and that I could do anything that also comes from inside. But, you know, I was lifted up in that way. But I also was raised to understand that we have a responsibility and this is what the book is about, right? It's a big idea, but it's really a small idea and that each of us uh, can do something. In my family, I was taught that I should do something that I had a responsibility and a duty to do something no matter how small, right? And so I definitely, um, I, I had both understandings that, you know, it's possible to do something big in the world and we should all, you know, seek that out if it's available to us or try to build towards that and things like transformative change, right? And understanding that this takes commitment and you're doing it for the long term, all that stuff. But also um, was really encouraged to understand that, you know, nothing is too small. And my grandmother in particular was just such an incredible example of everyday acts of activism, right? Um, she was a full-on activist and it's amazing now to have my book and there's a picture of her at the end and to show it to my daughters and say, you know, who's pro who used to protest in our family um, and point to my grandmother because, you know, my kids are aware of, you know, what's going on. But, you know, she was doing that as a student at UC Berkeley in the Civil Rights Movement. But as she got older, right, uh, she was still doing that in her own way, including, um, you know, when we would go to the grocery store, I, uh, she would explain to me why we weren't allowed to, oh, there's a child who's entered the room. Okay, yes, be careful. Sorry. Um, who, who, you know, told me that, uh, you know, what, we weren't allowed to buy grapes because we were boycotting grapes, right? And so I learned um, at a very young age that you could be an activist at the grocery store, right? And I literally at age four, like learned the word boycott from my grandmother who was teaching me this stuff. And so, and in other ways, you know, she was sort of a regular person. She wasn't an elected official. She wasn't a politician. Um, she was a breast cancer researcher, but she likewise, you know, in her work committed herself to having purpose and impact. And what that meant was that, you know, she was mentoring uh, students of color that were coming through her lab from UC Berkeley and, and was really committed to that. It meant that she um, had made, you know, a real effort to create spaces for black women who had suffered from breast cancer, right, and were recovering from uh, breast cancer. So she, I think, really, um, as I said, just exemplified, right, that all of us can do these these acts of activism, whatever you want to call it, right? Giving a damn, doing something in the world, helping your community, um, making positive change in, in some of the smallest ways. And we know that, you know, I think now with my kids as well, and what we're seeing right now in the streets is that when one person takes a small action and then five people take a small action and 10 people, it just grows and grows. And that's when you really have an impact and when you can truly build movements, right? Like I didn't, when I launched Phenomenal Woman, it was an example of just that. I, it was coming out of the 2016 election. I 
like a lot of people woke up the next day, just like, what the hell just happened? But most importantly, like, what can I do, right? What in my own sphere of influence in my own space, what can I do? And if you remember, lots of folks were starting, you know, fundraisers for the ACLU, um, especially after the Muslim ban, like I was at SFO airport, right? People were starting to really get more involved. And um, I likewise decided, okay, I'm going to do a fundraiser. I'm going to sell these t-shirts and raise money for women's organizations. It was supposed to be a one month long fundraising campaign, um, selling phenomenal women shirts inspired by the poem by Maya Angelou. I didn't set out to start a movement and um, it was supposed to be a one month thing, right? And here we are three years later and it's still going. Uh, and and it's an example of just, you know, taking that first step, right? For me, it was the t-shirt. Um, now it's a children's book. Uh, but those were really small things that I didn't know where they were going to lead. And um, I stuck with them. I grew them and they've now had, you know, much more impact than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, I've been hearing so much that activism is a marathon, not a sprint. And I think yes. that's something that a lot of people are struggling with right now is that they feel this really intense feeling that they need to help and they need to do something big and they don't really know what to do. And really what you're talking about, like sort of building small acts every day into your life is really the thing that's going to have the biggest impact and make the biggest change in the long term. Absolutely. And I think for me, building phenomenal over time, understanding that you know, some folks are new to this and we want to, uh, I look at it as an engagement ladder, right? Um, that we need to meet people where they are. And for some folks that today may not be knocking on doors or going out in the street protesting, but if I'm able to use this little t-shirt to like sort of start to draw them in, right? And, and it's something that they hadn't done before, which was donating to, uh, you know, women's organizations and talking about feminism and, and women's equality on online. Great. Like, let's do that and, and see, you know, how we can keep getting people to do more. Uh, so I think that's an, an important thing to keep in mind. And, and frankly, something that I used to be sort of more of a purist about it, where, you know, I, I was of the mind, like, teach, statement teachers don't do anything. What are you really doing? Or, you know, the political operative world, we have this saying, you know, lawn signs don't vote, right? Like, that's, that's not gonna actually get votes. But at the end of the day, what I've come to understand is that it's, yes, it's small, but it's concrete, it's tangible, it's inspiring somebody to any action, just something, right? And I'd much rather that than people stay silent, than people be complacent, than, you know, not doing anything at all. But to your point about it being a marathon, that is the key that we have to keep people engaged and folks need to show up consistently and continuously and do it in a way that, yes, works for them, right? Acknowledge that we're in the middle of a freaking public health crisis. I mean, this is one of the most extraordinary, you know, moments in history that I think we're going to study and look back on. Um, and, you know, folks have a lot going on. And I think, you know, we have to recognize even outside of the pandemic, right? Like people have nine to five jobs or trying to, we just talked about all the, you know, um, responsibilities that parents have now taken on um, that are totally unexpected. Like people are tired, people are suffering. And I, that, you know, that's um, a reality. And so I think, it's also about understanding, you know, encouraging people to to engage where they can and to do that in a consistent way. Yeah, and I totally get what you were saying where, uh, you know, there's so much pushback on just like T-shirts and posters or whatever. As coming from a graphic design world, we just see so many people sort of being like, the world doesn't need another poster. They need you to take action. They need you to be on the street. But even with your phenomenal campaign, you know, like that had more of an impact on me than I thought that it would because when I thought about that phenomenal mother t-shirt, like when I received it in the mail, I got so emotional, weirdly, because even the idea of like putting that on and wearing it in the world, I'm totally gonna get emo now. I'm still like breastfeeding, so I'm gonna blame on that. But <laughs> the idea Horm of hashtag hormones, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> but 
The idea of like going out into the world and proclaiming that you are a phenomenal mother feels super radical. Like it felt way more radical than I, I thought that it would have. And like, have you gotten a lot of feedback like that about just like the whole phenomenal campaign? Oh, absolutely. I love hearing stories like that. And it's exactly right. I mean, it's been around long enough now where hopefully most people have like seen a t-shirt and it doesn't feel as maybe as bold to wear it. But when we launched it, oh my gosh. I mean, you know, it was, as you said, it felt radical and courageous for women to proclaim to everybody, I'm phenomenal, right? And to post a photo of them yeah. wearing the shirt. And it was so awesome. I, I will never forget the day that we launched. It was International Women's Day back in 2017. It was like the first time that the world was really seeing all these shirts and we did a whole, you know, big campaign. And the just sort of cascade of comments from everybody like, you're phenomenal. Fuck yeah. I'm phenomenal. We're phenomenal. <laughs> Women are so phenomenal. And it was just like this whole, you know, like self-affirmation, community affirmation. I mean, it was so beautiful. And then since then, you know, I hear so many stories like the one that you just told where women talk about it like it's armor, right? And that like, I've had so many people wear it going into labor, leaving, you know, the hospital yeah. with a newborn, um, wearing it, you know, underneath a sweater to uh, a really important meeting at work, because they were deriving that, you know, power and strength from it. Um, you know, wearing it when they were trying to meet a deadline and had to do an all nighter, and we're just trying to remind themselves to like, you know, pull, push through. Um, and it's just, you know, a beautiful thing to really see that, you know, not only it's this universal thing in many ways, right? Um, and the meaning of it is, is I, I hope clear, but it also has such personal individual meaning to any given person on any given day. And that can, you know, change and, and, and be really meaningful to individual people. Um, and it's just, uh, beautiful. And another one that I love hearing stories around is like people running into each other on the street where they'll like see somebody wearing else wearing it. And they would send me photos, you know, of a stranger that they asked to take a picture with and you'd think that they were best friends, right? Like, and it's just such a great, um, you know, it's a, it's a community. I had an experience like that. It actually took quite a while. I was like, when am I going to run into somebody when I'm wearing my shirt? And, uh, I was, it was like an early morning flight. I was totally late. It was, uh, uh cross country. I was going to the East coast. It, I was in a middle seat. I was just like mad and late and like had to check my carry on. It was just a bad morning. And I'm, you know, walking on just kind of like my head down and I get to my row and I look up and the woman in the um, window is wearing the shirt sitting next to me in my row. Um, so that was like a pretty awesome moment. Um, but it, I think the other thing, too, is not only the personal meaning, but you also know what it stands for. Right. Um, the Phenomenal Mother shirt was a part of a campaign that is, for me, one of the most special ones and, and meaningful ones that we did, which was uh, to raise awareness around the humanitarian crisis at the border and family separation. And one of the most extraordinary things about that moment in particular in kind of building on all the things that, you know, we're talking about is that we were intending to celebrate the mothers who were so courageous to risk everything to bring their children here to the United States to create a better, what they thought would be a better life for their families. Right. And I think all moms can relate to that. If you were um, trying to escape harm or, you know, to, to save your family. And at the same time, we saw tons of moms all over the country saying, I can't sit by. I'm not, I cannot let this happen on my watch without doing something, right? And so the campaign was about celebrating those two, you know, groups of people who were, were incredibly courageous. And it was just another example of, you know, folks stepping up and saying, you know, this is something that just moves me to my core and I can't sit by without doing something. Um, another fun anecdote, I was uh, working at a, a co-working space in LA for the day and I'm sitting next to a friend of mine 
who's actually doing some of the border work with me. It was not planned. We ran into each other. We weren't even like working together, but we were sitting there and a woman uh, sitting at our table answers the phone and she starts talking about, yeah, I'm going to get the shoes and, and we have the backpacks ready to go. And we're going to go down, you know, to Tijuana uh, at the end of the week. And, and we were, me and Lucia, the woman um, who I worked with, looked at each other like, who is she? Is she, how do we not know her? Like, she's clearly doing work at the border. Like, this is crazy. And she gets off the phone and I said, I'm so sorry for being awkward, but I couldn't help but hear your conversation. And like, what organization are you with? Or what are you doing? And she's like, Oh, no, nobody. I'm just a regular mom. And like, I, I, she's like a a writer, right. In Hollywood. And she's like, I couldn't um, sit by, I'm collecting backpacks and shoes to send to families and to, and to get aid, emergency aid kits to families down there. Like, she was just, and she literally said that she's like, I'm just a mom. I'm just a regular, I'm like a a writer, like a, you know, a Hollywood person. And this is what I'm doing. So it was just such a great moment of, you know, for the campaign and also to, you know, show exactly what we're about, which is that each of us can be just like that woman who um, decided, you know, that she was going to do something and and created a a drive for her um, community to get, you know, need uh, aid to the, to the border. Totally. And like motherhood and moms have just been so important to you your whole life. Your mom is a huge influence on you. I read that, you know, she and Kamala were really different when they were kids and your mom was more of the bookworm and Kamala was more mischievous. Like, were you a bookworm as a kid? Like, what were some of your favorite uh, kids (laughs) growing up? You know, I was not. And it's funny. um, My older one is, and my God, I mean, it's just awesome. She's such a nerd and I love it. She loves books. I mean, she's been turning pages, like, you know, since she was a baby, I definitely, you know, I was like, I did well in school. Um, I was much more entrepreneurial and it started showing, I started showing that very early on. Um, I was sort of like always making and selling shit, (laughs) Um, including like through college, I was like making earrings and, and selling them at local boutiques and selling them to all my classmates um, and it was also, uh, very creative. I was very into, you know, visual arts and drawing and painting. I was the kid that, you know, there's this, I think it actually still exists. It's called the junior center of art and science in Oakland, California, where I'm from. And, uh, it, they have like, you know, two week long sessions for art camp. And it was like morning session or afternoon session. And I was the kid that did morning and afternoon and every session for the entire summer. Like they could not get rid of me. Um, So, you know, I mean, books were definitely and we read all the classics um, when I was a kid growing up. And somebody asked me that recently and I couldn't remember a book I read that was meaning that, you know, that I can think back on that, like had a girl character or, you know, woman of color character that. Um, that I can remember and how sad that is and is also, you know, why I wrote my book. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was definitely, you know, I would say that my mom was sort of the, the bookworm. She was also very, um, athletic and more sort of into sports and Kamala was like definitely more mischievous. (laughs) Um, there's this photo, actually I have the book right here of them. Uh, if you can see it, that inspired actually the cover. So this is the photo of them sitting back to back. And then that's the cover of them standing back to back. But if you look at the expressions on their faces, it's like, you know, they must be something like, I don't know, nine and 11. And my mom, you know, she has the bandana on and the ball, like, you know, the athletic one. And Kamala is just like, yeah, I just killed a man. <laughs> like she yeah, just looks like, like fast for sure. yeah, like fears. <laughs> And there's so many other photos of them like that, too, where you can see the personality. Um, But I just as a kid, I loved that. I loved looking at photo. uh, That photo that I showed of them was um, always in my grandmother's entryway um, on a bookshelf. And 
I just would look at it all the time and, you know, loved hearing stories about them as children, how, who they were. And then also my grandmother. I mean, so much of my childhood, too, was hearing stories about her experience um, coming here to the United States and getting involved in the civil rights movement. And, um, you know, all of her, all of my aunties and uncles and extended family were all part of that movement. And so I heard lots and lots of, of stories growing up about that. Yeah. So one of the motivations that you talked about for actually writing the book was the fact that the books that you read growing up didn't have a lot of female characters, a lot of female characters of color. And there's just like been such a diversity issue in books, but then also in the publishing industry in general. So has that been like a huge motivator for you to get into the, into children's book publishing? You know, it wasn't. So first of all, I never thought I was going to be a, like a kid's book author. It was not on my bucket list. It just, it's kind of like phenomenal. I was responding in the moment. I was seeing what was happening and I decided, you know what, I'm going to go do this thing. And the real, I think, initial motivation for it was some of the stuff we talked about in the beginning, which was, you know, becoming a new mom, thinking about how do I raise my daughters in the way that I was raised and how do I pass on these values and these lessons that I knew were so important to me growing up in the family that I did. And um, one of those lessons, as I also mentioned, you know, was that none of us can do everything, but all of us can do something. And in my family is that we, we have a duty to do something. So that was part of the book was memorializing that, you know, for my own children. So I could literally pass it down to them through this story that was based on childhood of my mom and aunt um, and then share that with kids around the world. But another, you know, thing that was kind of happening at the same time was also, you know, becoming a new mom and reading books to my now older daughter. And as you said, like, uh, we know for sure that that didn't exist when I was a kid. But, you know, reading all the classics, Goodnight Moon and, you know, Hungry Caterpillar and Brown Bear and at a certain point, I'm like, where the hell are the girls? Like, where are the characters that look like my daughter, right? With brown skin and curly hair. And, um, you know, we were coloring the skin in brown with a brown marker because um, all the characters were white most of the time or animals, right? Um, uh, changing the pronouns from he to she a lot. Uh, you know, Curious George, I'm like, where are the women? Why are there all like every single character? You know, obviously a supporting character sometimes will be a woman, but never the main characters. Um, there's a statistic in 2018 that there were more books that had animals as main characters than there were books that had Black, Latinx, Asian, and Indigenous characters combined. Combined. And, you know, the same uh, lack of diversity exists, uh, you know, within the, across the whole publishing industry. We know this. Somebody put out a graphic. People are, you know, kind of finally paying attention to this stuff um, around things like literary agents, right? Um, I mean, the whole supply chain, like from beginning to end, it lacks diversity and specifically, you know, black decision makers. Um, and in particular, you know, from my experience looking at this is that there's also lack of authors of color, um, female authors of color and illustrators, right? Um, if you go back and look at some of the stuff from, you know, five years ago, it's, it's like white men. It's a lot of white men. Um, Marley Diaz, who's this young um, education and book activist, uh, has this quote that like, they just wanted me to read about a white boy and his dog. <laughs> and it's, pretty true, right? I mean, we've made a ton of progress, I'll say, in the last, uh, you know, three to five years where there's there's a ton more diversity, but I think we still have a long way to go where, again, they're not just supporting characters. They are the, you know, main protagonists in, in these books. Um, and I'm, I'm proud to be sort of a part of, you know, this new wave of, of people who are starting to contribute. Um, the other thing that's interesting is when I became a new mom, I was lucky in that it coincided with this sort of proliferation of of like feminist literature, right? So the Rebel Girls, uh, Goodnight Rebel Girls, and um, Radical Women, I, uh, Rad Women from A to Z, 
which are really great, uh, really important books. And I think teaching history is super important. Um, but I also was sort of like, I, if I read another list of women that are like not even alive, right? Uh, one of the things that I now getting to, you know, hear feedback from people reading my book is that the kids love learning that Maya and Kamala, the characters in the book are real people that exist in the world right now, right? And, you know, being able to see fully developed, relatable, fictional characters and knowing as a new mom that like, that's how your kids learn about the world for the first time is through books. I mean, through your family, right? But before they go to preschool, it's really uh, through books and, and how important that is in, in shaping their understanding of themselves and, you know, of the world. And and that way, I think uh, it's just as important for, you know, girls and, and black girls as it is for white children and for boys. And I think we're finally, again, now with everything that's happening um, right in this moment, you're seeing people sort of wake up to that. And I'm proud that we've been on a ton of these lists, right? How to diversify your bookshelf, um, how to teach your kids anti-racism, how to, you know, promote black characters to them and, you know, expose them to um, black characters and, and leaders. But my God, it's like, it's 2020. <laughs> but I'm glad that, yeah. you know, we're starting to see some of that change. And I, I really hope that, you know, people stick with that commitment, right? They have this whole sort of movement around um, Blackout Tuesday, you know, supporting Black-owned businesses, supporting Black-led organizations. I'm like, can we do this every Tuesday? Like, let's keep this going, right? <laughs> like, this is something we need to really keep up. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Well, I feel like that's one of the things that's really special about your book, too, because I do find that as I'm trying to introduce like more diversity into our bookshelf and things like that, so much of it is like a historical account of a famous older woman that has accomplished things, which like, right. they're great. I'm so glad they're out there. But like, I have my oldest is five and she's just yeah. not interested yet. You know, like, I feel like that's right. the, even the Goodnight Rebel Girls, I tried sort of getting her into that. And she just doesn't want to hear biographies about famous women right now. She wants to hear real stories about people that she can relate to. And just the fact that your book is a real story, but it's also starring children, I think really makes it very special totally. within that zone. Because you don't see a lot of that. You see a lot of sort of like fictional, char fictional characters and fictional storylines, or you see a lot of adult women storylines. And it's not like those things totally. should exist, but... I think that the the particular space that your book is in, there are not a lot of books in that space right now. And what my kids need, what a lot of kids need is just to see kids being kids and doing cool stuff um, and just seeing examples that they can look up to that feel like realistic and feel achievable and feel like they're not so removed from their current age bracket that they can't do those things. Exactly. And part of it, you know, I just seeing my older daughter, especially just soak up everything around her, including, you know, we had a family member that ran for president and the following week she's saying, I want to be a president. Right. And I'm like, all right, let's, how, how do you become a president? Let's figure that out. Right. That's your big idea. Like what are the steps towards achieving that? But like this stuff is real to her. Right. I show her, um, there's this beautiful video of Kamala. Um, I can't remember what city it was in, but there was this drum line and it was all these black children and girls who were doing the drums and dancing. And I showed it to my daughters. I wanted her to see that. And she said, I want to be a dancer. Right. Like that's that you can't, uh, be what you can't see. And when they see it, I mean, it's just like, I can do that. I want to be that. And I want to keep being able to show that to them. And that's part of what this is about, right? Like this is real, this is possible and you can do it as a kid. Right. 
Um, and so it's, it's super cool now that the book is actually in the world and to hear that that is how children are reacting to it. Right. Like I've heard, I, I should actually go and save them. I've gotten so many wonderful messages, but you know, ranging from, is that, can I read the persisters book? Like the, the book about sisters, um, you know, learning that it's, that Kamala is a real person and Maya, that they're real sisters in real life. And that one of them ran for president, right? Like, it's just, it's really amazing, um, to see, you know, the impact that it has on, on children and their outlook for sure. Totally. And I mean, I have a story, like we have a book about Misty Copeland and yeah, I was reading yeah. it to my daughter because my daughter's super into ballerinas right now. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the book, she was like, I wish I had dark skin so I could be a ballerina too. And oh like it gosh. started this whole conversation with us about, you know, like we hadn't really talked in depth about race before because, you know, she was four and I had a two-year-old and yeah. a baby. And so we, we had always talked about how everyone's equal and no one should be treated badly. But this idea of achievement linked to race yes, had never been yes. part of our conversation. So even that book allowed us to have the conversation of like, you could look like anything and be a ballerina. You could, you know, have any body type and be a ballerina. You know, right. there was, uh, there was but so it's many also starting from the place of like that. things that you, the baller, like, you know, successful ballerinas, presidents are black and women and right. Like they, yeah. that, what if that were the default? <laughs> I wonder what kind of, you know, exactly, world exactly. we would, but for that to be her first um, experience with it and aspiring to it, I think is so beautiful and uh historically we know that it would have been a white male right a white man that she was seeing as sort of the the thing to be celebrated and and to to aspire after uh so that's um i love that that's really cute i actually just shared misty copeland with my daughter too um and there's just been so many other moments like that where uh there are sort of accidental sort of like not well thought out moments such as you know turning on a song from little mermaid and then listening to the lyrics and be like oh my god i have to turn this off immediately i forgot or i didn't realize like how bad it was um to you know her some something came up about you know twirler like the ribbon twirlers and she became interested in it and i said oh you want to see a video and i just like googled it quickly and every single video was a white child and i thought oh my god like this is her you know like gymnastics so i'm like let me look up you know uh Simone, am I getting the name right? Uh, no, Simone Biles is a swimmer, right? Um, anyway, looking up no, so one of the, what, what is yeah, it? I think you're right. Think oh, you're am right. I right? Okay. <laughs> um, there's so many extraordinary, uh, you know, uh, options to choose from now, but, you know, being able to think about, okay, wait a second, like I actually have something to show her that is a little black gymnast, right? Or a little uh, black uh, girl who's a ribbon twirler instead of uh, accepting the default that like YouTube was showing me when I searched that for that video. Totally. And I think that, you know, I've just noticed it again and again, and making such a big difference, like even with body, body size and things like that. Mm -hmm. Like I'm super interested in exploring that as a, a thing to really pursue in terms of activism, in terms of children's books, just because of having a female child who is currently identifying as female, but who is very mm -hmm. focused on like the pretty girls are the thin girls. And that's mm -hmm. something that I want to dis dispel in like a huge way. And trying to right. figure out how to get more diversity in books all over the cross of like all scales for sure. Well, not to be totally um, shameless, but I did have somebody comment that they um, I'm holding the book right here, but that they um, <laughs> were happy to see that they uh, felt that this was very uh, body positive and inclusive, um, which is to say that they're not, you know, skinny characters. They're sort of. Yeah, everybody's not. Yeah, everybody's yeah, not a skinny, big headed character. Mm -hmm. exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. 
um, Brad. So the, I love that the book is all about being a community leader. Like that's like, and I love that term. It's one of those things that I hadn't really thought about deeply as a term, but I really like it because it's very scalable. You know, like we all think about like being civically engaged and it feels like you're kind of going to the top versus like doing something on the ground right now. Did framing it that way help make civic engagements feel less intimidating for you growing up? Or do you feel like that in general helps civic engagement feel less uh, intimidating? Absolutely. It's funny you mentioned that because community leader is like a huge, big term in our house in part because of how like aggressive and intense I have been with it. Um, to, I'll go back to that, but answer your question. You know, when I grew up, I, if I'm recalling, nobody, we weren't, nobody was like referring to themselves as activists and I, rather everybody was a lawyer, right? Everybody was like a civil rights lawyer. Um, lots of people were elected officials. A lot of them were academics. And so the people that I was sort of looking up to and who were revered um, both in my own household and then also my extended family, um, many of them were in actuality, you know, community organizers, lawyers. Um, but we didn't have, we weren't using that terminology of like activists. And what I think is important about that is that um, I, I guess I, to answer your question, I don't know if that sort of took off some of the maybe like pressure or feeling like I had this title to aspire to because now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, instead I, you know, it was lawyer. Um, but, you know, to my family's credit, they never pressured me. I think I, I did become a lawyer, um, although I'm now a recovering lawyer, but, you know, it, it, in some ways it felt like the path of least resistance because it was sort of just all around me all the time. But they also said to me, you know, you can do anything, right. But like whatever you do decide to do the one expectation we have of you is excellence, right. If you want to go pursue all the drawing and painting that you're doing, great. Like, go to art school. Uh, if you want to be a chef, like, go to, you know, culinary school. Um, and so education was hugely emphasized. But, you know, back to in terms of what I was seeking, you know, that would unlock sort of all of these possibilities for me to, to be whatever I wanted, um, including to do the work that they were all doing. Um the term community leader, it's so interesting that you ask that in this context, which is that I've had this whole like journey with that phrase and it started with Moana. <laughs> so Moana compared to like the little mermaid is a really great film. In my opinion, you know, recent kids film, um, where you're getting culture and, you know, brown skin and like all of this, what the music and the language, all of it is wonderful. The one I think, I mean, I'm sure I have several, but like one of the things that stuck out to me, like if I were to critique it, were that I was happy that they didn't call her a princess, but they still referred to her as the, the daughter of the chief. And so we're still defining her by her relation to, you know, a man. And I'm watching this movie, you know, for the first time and thinking, okay, this is good. I like this. You know, we didn't, we don't really do dolls, but like, I like the idea of her getting a Moana doll. Their hair texture is actually very much similar. This is good stuff. But like, what do I call Moana? I don't want to call her the chief, the chief's daughter. Right. Um, and so I was like, do I call her community organizer? Then I was like, that feels like a little, like almost clinical and it's not accurate and precise, right? She wasn't a community organizer. So I was like, community leader, like, that's what I'm going to go with. And early on, I kept saying, wow, Moana is such an amazing community leader. I love community leaders. And, you know, she knows my shirts and like phenomenal women are community leaders and just kind of like really trying to emphasize this. And now, you know, she's going to be four in two days, but for the last, like, I would say two years, anytime she sees a female character. Mommy, is that a community leader? Is that a community leader? Oh, she looks like a really good community leader. And it's not just a label, of course, right? And then when she says that, it's like, well, what does it mean to be a community leader, right? Like, let's walk through what the different sort of character traits and let's see if they meet those, you know, character traits of what a community leader is. Um, So I think 
it is certainly something that I have found is feels very teachable. Uh, I do hope to get to a point where I can explain to her organizing, right? But we're sort of not there yet. She's four. Um, but I can say, you know, from experience that community leader has really resonated with um, young children. And I think it's a way, including, you know, books like mine to be able to really talk about sort of universal values around empathy and compassion, right? Caring for your community, being kind to your neighbor, wanting to help your community in times of need, um, leaning on your community, understanding there's power in community. This book is, yes, about, you know, two black girl leaders, but it's actually really about community and everything that I, I just said and, you know, the power of community. So um, it's it's fun to see, like, how it's actually impacting her and that she's really taking it seriously, including, I mean, she's going to be, I'm like, I think, I'm like, I hope I'm not messing her up because <laughs> it's so intense. Um, it's definitely not as intense as my family was. So uh, on those terms, like, I think I'm doing okay. Um, but, you know, she will, I got a note from one of her um, preschool teachers where they were like building snow, snowmen um, over the holidays. This is obviously in San Francisco. So it was like, you know, not real snow, a uh, little craft project. And apparently she said, well, what about snow women? And I was like, yes, <laughs> uh it's working you know um so <laughs> it's raising kids is is wild and i think all of us are just trying to like figure it out and you know nobody really knows um what to do but i think if you kind of take these basic building blocks and these basic tools and you commit to to saying i'm going to really emphasize you know women i'm going to really emphasize uh you know diversity and just try to keep drawing that out, right? It's not a it's not a daunting thing if you really do try to just incorporate it. It, it takes the commitment, you know, the starting point to say, all right, this is what I'm going to be really intentional about, like anything. Uh, but once you you know decide that, I think that it's actually very doable. Yeah, for sure. I think that just sort of the idea that you can have like a really big impact at a very small scale is so important. And it's something that you really feel while reading the book. And one of the words that you brought up was just sort of the, the word tools and the tools that we use to like teach our kids. And I think that that's one of the things that makes kids books so completely special is that if you can create a book that becomes a tool to teach a really intense concept to kids, like that book will have such a huge impact. And it just becomes Absolutely. so useful. And I think totally. that's one of the things that as children's book authors that we like can't take for granted, mm. you know, you're creating something that's going to have an unbelievable impact on someone. And I'm sure that like, even though I was also not a crazy reader as a kid, <laughs> you know, I think, <laughs> See, uh, I think it's I, something I about like, being creative, right? I think it, there's something yeah, about yeah, yeah. that. I think it's a common thing. <laughs> you're either, you're either like the drawing kid or you're the reading kid or whatever, right. but I still like. I still have like visceral memories of children's books that I had as a kid. Like I actually mm -hmm. have the physical books that my mom has like sent me. And it's so humbling to think about that as a children's book author. Is that something that you've like even wrapped your head around now that there's going to be people that 30 years from now, they're going to hold your book in their hand and like have that memory of having that conversation with their parents. Wow. No, I mean, thank you for that. That is like super profound and so true and, and so special. I'm still like in the just exhaustion of having just kind of wrapped up my launch week. So no, I have not <laughs> sat and thought about like, Oh my God, kids are going to hold this third, but like, that is so awesome and absolutely right. Um, I think along those lines too, this, this idea of basic building blocks, what I, I, I love about this book is that, and what I was really intentional about is that they are, as you said, universal lessons to teach sort of more complex issues, right? 
My book is not how to talk to your kids about race. My book is not, here's a guide to being a black uh, girl leader here, you know, here's how to be a community. Like, that's not what it's about. And, and uh, you can really draw any lesson out of it and apply it to any context, including the one we're in right now, right. That we all can do something, what, you know, maybe that's showing up and going to a march, right. Or, or donating to an organization or something we can all do, but also there's just like basics. It's about problem solving. It's about persevering. It's about, you know, in my household, I was, I grew up as like a super only child. Uh, cause I was like, two, my grandma was a single mom. Mom was a single mom. And then Kamala didn't have any kids at the time. And so I was like this only child for a long time. And I was like, talked to like an adult, right. And challenged if, you know, I wanted to sit at the dinner table and, and have adult conversations. Great. But like, if you have something to say or make it, if you want to argue, you better be able to back it up. And if you're not, you know, we're going to probe that. Right. And so, and that way too, it's about challenging your kids is not only say you can have a big idea and go after it. Okay. But how do you do that? What are the steps that you need to take in order to go after your big ideas? Right? Like the idea of, uh, you know, these, these values, but following them up with action and tools so that they are actually actionable. And, uh, you know, I think the other big message of it is persevering. There's lots of moments in the book where they're told, no, right. You're, you're too young. It can't be done. It's too expensive. And it is so amazing. I mean, I joke that this book is like for adults too, right? Like I spent the last three years talking to adults saying a lot of the same stuff. And then I just put it in a kid's book. Um, Speaking of like being talked to like an adult when I grew up, but uh, when I was growing up, um, one of my friends is one of, uh, is a criminal justice uh, journalist and he was reporting from Minneapolis and they actually broke the story around uh, the city council making the commitment to disband the police and literally one of his tweets, and I, I, I saved it because it said, like, this is how you get stuff done. And part of it is persevering when people say to you, no, sorry, it can't be done. And that's literally in my book, right? Like, no, sorry, yeah. this can't be done. And the kids figure out how to get it done. Just like the protesters, are, they, they stick with it, they keep at it, and they're getting it done. So it's super cool to see in real time, like, how this translates, and not only to kids, but adults, too. Oh, totally. I think I think the best kids books, one, they are the books that start conversations between parents and kids, various kinds of conversations. Like those are the books that are going to be the best tools they are going to be the things that the kids have, like want to come back to again and again, because it's not just right. like a one note, explain it sort of thing. And then also they are the books that apply these like universal things that we all even have as adults have a hard time sort of nailing, you know, we need to be reminded. I think that that's an amazing space to explore in kids' books is like, what's the thing that we, even as adults, struggle with that we can start learning earlier in order to make that a part of our life and to make that a part of who we are? Totally. And I think at this moment, we're kind of seeing that like back to basics, right? There's this beautiful video from Sesame Street that was breaking down like, what does protest mean? Why do people protest? And it's Elmo and Elmo's dad. And, uh, I tweeted it and I was like, a lot of adults need to watch this video too. Right. Like (laughs) it's just, it's really clarifying and it's, uh, basic stuff, but you know, uh, folks I think can really use some of those like basic building blocks, um, to really grapple with and engage with what is yes, a very complex, um, moment, but one that, you know, if you ask folks that have been doing this work is also, um, very, I think, clarifying and sort of what they've been working towards this whole time. Awesome. Well, we're going to jump to some audience questions in a minute, but I have to know what your mom and Senator Harris think of the book. <laughs> they love it. Um, I, the big joke is, and I still haven't figured out what to do about this, 
is um, how to read it to my kids and whether or not I should change the names to grandma and auntie because mm. my kids know that my name is Mina and they know that Nick, my partner, is named Nick because they hear us calling each other that. And it's like a big joke in our house, like of my kids trying to call me Mina. And I'm like, do not call me Mina. That's not my name to you. I'm mommy. However, they do not, to my knowledge, know that auntie is Kamala and that grandma is Maya. And if they figure that out, like it's going to be a problem. <laughs> so that's like the big joke. Like, how do I, do I change the names to like grandma and auntie's big idea so that I don't get disowned by uh, my aunt in particular. But um they, you know, I think they're really touched. And I think most of all, they're proud of me. Um, I think, you know, knowing that I had sort of this spontaneous idea, I had, a, I had a little big idea, and I went for it. Like, I did what I'm talking about in the book, right? Um, I decided, like, all right, I see an opportunity to do this, I'm gonna go do it. And I don't know if it's gonna work, if it's gonna be successful, but like, I'm gonna go try. And uh, so I think they're really um, proud and, and touched. And obviously, it's special to be able to use this tool, which is a family story, right? It's so personal. And to be able to point to the pictures in the back and show my kids, like, look at, that's my grandma. And my grandma, as I was saying at the beginning, she was a protester, right? That's what we do in our family, right? In our family, we come up with big ideas and we go for them. Um, so it's really special. And uh, I am honored to be able to carry on and pass on their story. Yeah. And I love that. Just like how, when you were a child, you had these like amazing, crazy women in your life that you're like, oh, it's just normal to run for president, whatever. Right. Now your kids are going to look at you and be like, oh yeah, I'll just write a book. It's not a big deal. Well, you know? no, that literally you're, happened. You're it was the same person. No, it's so <laughs> funny. I mean, that's what, how kids are. It, it, it took me a while to figure out what was going on, but you know, my older one, she's always grabbing colored paper and paper and, and drawing. And ha there's like stacks of paper all over her drawing everywhere. And she comes upstairs one day. is like, mommy, mommy, I need tape. I need tape. I need to tape all my papers together. And I'm like, why do you need tape? She's like, I'm writing a book. I'm making a book. I need tape to put them together. And it was when things were like particularly crazy for me with my book. And again, back to like that conference call thing, she heard me and knew, right, that I was talking to her about it. Mommy's writing a book. And so she was writing a book. Um, and once again, I got a text from, you know, one of the preschool teachers that's like, Amara did not go to playtime because she was so busy writing her book and she could not take a break from it. So, uh, it, and it was, it took me a while to connect like, oh, she's an author now, right? Like she's writing a book yeah. too. Um, and now she what tells her, me what like, her next, book about? <laughs> oh God. So, well, some of it is sort of like, oh, it's about a playground. It's, it's similar to what my book is about. So now we're working on last night. Um, our whole dinner conversation was like, what's your big idea? And what questions do you have? And like, just, you know, going one of her big ideas. Anyway, it's like, it's very complicated. Um, but my, my, what I want to do is now take that and turn it into a book for her, right. Or for her to write that out in a book. Um, some of the big ideas that she's coming up with. Um, but yeah, it's, it's super fun. And as I said, kids are just like, I mean, they're amazing, but it's just so wild to see how they soak up everything. Right. And, uh, she, what she did say to me, I did a reading with them on video and one of the, it was like one of the first times I was reading it out loud to them. And she said, okay, next time can I want to write the book with you? So I've been telling her, okay, next time we're going to write the book together. We're going to be co-authors. So we'll see. Oh man. Have a little author awesome. in our house. Yeah. I love it. All right. I'm going to jump to some audience questions here. All right, we have, have you talked to your kids about the tense cultural moment we're living in and any advice for or tools for parents who aren't sure how to have these conversations right now? Absolutely. I think, you know, our whole conversation to, tonight has been about how to take some of these basic tools and universal lessons and apply them to this moment. 
So I would go back to that. I think the number one rule for me that I try to stick to is to be honest with your children as honest as possible. Uh, I don't believe in like shielding children or um, protecting them in such a way that's sort of like keeping them in a bubble. Obviously I'm not like showing violence to them or things that I think are going to scare that are not age appropriate. Right. But I think that there are ways to talk to our children um, honestly about what's going on that is age appropriate and to think about what lessons you are trying to pull out of that versus just like telling them what's happening in the news. Uh, and what I mean by that is there was a, this happened recently in our house. Um, speaking of, there's just like all this paper and she's always drawing on stuff. There was a sheet of paper lying around that, uh, I had used in a video and it's, it read 100,000 Americans have died from coronavirus. And it was like sitting in the recycling and she saw it and she wanted to trace letters because she's learning to trace letters. And she said, what does it say? And I'm like, oh my gosh, all right. I'm not going to lie to her. I'm not going to tell her like, oh, it says happy birthday or like that doesn't feel right. And so I'm like, all right, let me read this to her and then figure out what the hell I'm going to say. And so I read it and she said, die, a hundred thousand Americans died. And I was like, all right, I want to use this moment to, you know, talk to her about gratitude and the need for a social safety net (laughs) and like, how am I going to get there? And, you know, part of it was, she knows what coronavirus is. She knows why we're home. She knows that there is, you know, people are getting sick that, right. So she has that much context, but I wanted to explain to her that yes, people have died because they, you know, they tried everything that they could to protect themselves. Just like mommy and daddy have taught you to wash your hands. Right. They, um, you know, they did everything possible, but some of them had to go to work and were not protected, right? Some of them don't have access to doctors and healthcare. And because they were not protected and they deserve to be protected, unfortunately, some of them died, right? Um, so I was, that's sort of in my mind, like that's what I wanted to get across to her. And I knew that I had the opportunity, you know, to do that in, in, a, in a simple way that, you know, I'm not like sitting up there, um, you know, I did teach her the word, uh, epidemiology the other night so we'll see how that goes <laughs> but um I think I've got a podcast for her <laughs> like you know I just kids your kids are amazing and I think that they're and I think in the same way like we have so much to learn from them this like unfiltered view of the world and so talk to them honestly and see how they react it's like kind of amazing right like what we learn from our kids but anyway I think the point is it's really about breaking it down and, and, you know, breaking off like bite-sized things that you can, and that's also the point that it's continuous. And what I first said to her was, this is a, a longer conversation. I want to keep having this conversation, but you know, right now let's talk about this one thing that I want to share with you. Right. And like, let's keep this conversation going. So, you know, making clear that it's not just a one, one and done, right? Like this is an ongoing thing that we're going to be engaging with in our family. Totally. And I love the idea of coming at it to teach gratitude, because I think that there's so many complex issues that you can teach kids where you center the whole conversation around gratitude. Like Mm -hmm. our car has been broken into like tons of times. And like, Mm -hmm. we don't talk about how bad guys steal your stuff. We talk about Mm -hmm. how we're so grateful that we're like in this position where we don't need to steal to get things in our lives, you know, and some people aren't as lucky as us. And so there's so many moments where like gratitude can really be the center of it. 
So one Absolutely. one person asked, "What's the best What's the best activity you can do with your kids to encourage activism? Is it take it to pro take them to protests, read to them, just talk to them? Like, sort of, what's the best thing to get the ball rolling?" All of that. I think um, the first thing I'll do it one little shameless plug, which is that we have activity pages for the book where you literally can print out an at home activity page that walks you through what's my big idea and what do I who do I need to send a letter to? How do I get it done? So there are and there are lots of other resources online right now circulating around sort of how do you really uh, walk your kids through this stuff in a concrete way. But I think the uh, it does start with those conversations. And one thing that really sticks with me is a conversation I had with Lauren Underwood before she became a congresswoman. And what she told me was that, you know, she grew up in a household that was different than mine in that it wasn't like political activism and social justice everywhere all the time, but rather her parents just talked to her about the news, right? Like she talked, she talked about having an intense memory of um, Clinton, the Clinton election. And it was not political for her family, but instead it was just that they were staying engaged with what was going on in the world. And so I think the very least you can do is talk to your kids about what is going on in the world, right, in an honest way, with an emphasis on, like, the world doesn't revolve around you. There are other people in the world that have different experiences from us and that we should care about what's happening to them, what's happening in the world. Uh, And I think that's a really, again, basic thing that creates curious children, empathetic children, um, you know, children who are eager and, you know, excited to learn about other things outside of their own, you know, sphere, uh, likewise, I think, you know, books like mine, if you really, you know, want to go deep on this stuff, and I think it depends on the age of your child, uh, there are now, again, I mean, not now, they've been around for a while, but other resources around, you know, from child psychologists, ranging from that to the academics around how to talk to your kids about racism, how to raise anti-racist children. Um, so there are tons of resources, but I think as a parent, it's really about, uh, as I keep saying, making that commitment and intention and figuring out how to weave it into, you know, the everyday, uh, even in the, even in the smallest ways. And, uh, I think, you know, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be intense. I, I do think we should all always challenge ourselves to be better and do more. And I talked about this engagement ladder, right. Uh, but I also think that there are super small, like accessible, tangible ways that you can weave it into, uh, you know, your, your day-to-day parenting. And I'll go with one more question from the audience before we wrap up with our very last question. Um, I thought this was a good one. What advice do you have for girl dads? Oh, girl dads are so special. Um, I I have obviously we have a girl dad in our house because we have two girls. Um, it, it, I just um, I think there's such a AOC Congresswoman um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez just tweeted about this. Just the there's something very special about that relationship, and um, we actually just uh, released a girl dad line uh, collection through Phenomenal. And part of my intention in doing it was making it match our Phenomenal Girl collection because I felt like you don't, you see a lot of like mommy and me stuff, but you don't really see like girls matching their dads, which I thought was um, interesting and, you know, uh, empowering for girls to grow up with, you know, a healthy understanding of masculinity and men. Um, and, and that it's up to girl dads to represent that and to, you know, show that to their children. Um, so I think that's a piece of it, right. That you are going to be your child's, you know, first, um, understanding of, of masculinity, whatever that means to you, uh, and, and your, you know, your house and, uh, and how she's treated by men and back to, you know, I think how we can be talking to our kids, how we can use tools like this. I become really interested in learning about, um, in particular, 
you know, how early this stuff starts, um, including with boys, right, and how they see girls and, and how that translates into how they treat women. And again, it goes back to things like empathy and understanding boundaries and uh, viewing girls as leaders, right, that have big ideas that are worth supporting and worth following. And, you know, seeing uh, a Misty Copeland and saying, I want to be like her, right? Um, and so in the same way, I think, you know, just keeping in mind, I don't know how old your kids are, but that this stuff starts so young and the social norms, including the really harmful ones that we know lead to some bad outcomes when we're adults, like we can really start to, you know, do some of this now. And I'm a firm believer that, you know, women's equality, uh, girls equality has to be a part of women's equality. And um, I think right now we kind of have this like girl power and it's like very, you know, positive, which is good, but, we also have to be real about the fact there's this quote, like girl power is amazing because it turns into women's power. And I'm like, yeah, but it also kind of just turns into women's inequality. <laughs> like we have to really, you know, again, like be real about this stuff and, and teach our girls that like there is sexism and, you know, it, it's not going to be easy for you um, in the world that we currently live in. And, you know, so I think those messages in particular coming from a good dad figure, I think, um, are really great. But I also want to be super clear and not like super gendered about, um, you know, parenting. I think anyone can deliver these important messages. Um, and I think that, uh, in the same way that, uh, moms can, you know, talk to their, uh, boys and girls about healthy concepts of, you know, masculinity, how we view women, how we treat women, and it's, it's truly up to all of us, uh, no matter, you know, what, what sort of family situation you have. So it's an informed tradition to ask all of our speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change yeah, the world? So 60 seconds is kind of a long time. I only have three words of my idea to change the world, and it is defund the police. I think we can all agree with that idea to change the world this week, man. I like, hope so. I mean, everybody so, is everybody's a convert now. So, well, you know, people. I encourage folks to you know read up and really study and understand what it means, and to uh, get your information from black activists in particular who have been doing this work for generations. And um, not to be kind of a jerk about the sixty-second thing, but to me, it's basic. It's about um, abolishing and dismantling racist systems that oppress people and in particular black people. And uh, I hope we do the whole thing. It's not just limited to police and prisons. It is lots of other systems as well, but that framework around transformational change and, and dis systemic racism and dismantling uh, racist systems is one that we are finally having a real conversation about, it seems. And I hope that folks, um, you know, really engage with it in a meaningful way instead of perhaps reacting from a place of discomfort, right? We spent the last two weeks, like trying to talk to white people about like just sitting with the discomfort. Like that's the point. We know this is un uncomfortable, um, but you can't, you know, shy away from it. And so I think I'm probably over 60 seconds now, but that's my, my, my idea. I think too, like when you talk about defunding the police, it all comes back to the core message of your book, which is that it's all actually about community and communities yeah. are the people that should be responsible for keeping everything safe, for making sure everyone can, you know, max out the life that they have. And 
putting all of the responsibility to like manage the community on a corrupt system that is rigged against a huge group of people is wrong. And so I love the idea of just bringing it back to community. And your book is such a good reminder of how important community is. So absolutely. That's exactly right. So thank you so much, Nina Harris, for joining us at Inform and the Commonwealth Club. Please be sure to pick up a copy of Kamala and Maya's Big Idea at your local bookstore. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Jessica Hish. Thank you and stay safe.